Spoke Media. Hey, Carson. Hey, Janiel. And hey, everyone. Welcome back to Untitled Dad Project, my meta-narrative quest to figure out my own story, finally reckon with a dad character I never knew, and find that damn meaningful narrative resolution. And today we're talking about plot. Plot is easy. Plot is everything that happens to a character, the events that happen in the story, in the order that they happen. So basic Aristotelian plot structure, if you like flash back to some whiteboard or blackboard, at some point you see like a roller coaster shape, a line that goes up and comes back down. It starts with exposition, that flat line. Yeah, (laughs) here we are. It's our stasis. Everything is as it always has been. And then all of a sudden, whoa, the inciting incident. Oh my God. We're going up. We're going up. And that's all the rising action stuff is happening. More stuff is happening. Oh my God, more stuff is happening until the climax (laughs) where the big thing happens. And then from then on out, it is falling action. Oh my gosh, things are falling into place. Until we hit the resolution. (sighs) We are back on a flat line and everything is sadder because we didn't get what we wanted or happier because we got what we wanted or some kind of ambiguous postmodern mumblecore film where we kind of got some stuff, but we didn't get others. But we are resolved, man. Hmm. I was on that roller coaster. Thank you. That was gorgeous. So that's plot structure. Plot as a concept is pretty definable. But for my story, plot is a problem because I can't let go of my other plot, the plot that could have been. We learned in our first episode that my inciting incident was my dad dying because my stasis was thinking that not having a dad doesn't matter. It's I'm fine. Everything's fine. And my dad's death broke that stasis, made me realize that it's mattered. He's mattered. It's mattered this whole time. But I thought that my inciting incident was going to be that email that I was drafting in my head to my dad before he died. That's what would break my stasis from inaction to action, from silence to suddenly saying something. So when he died before I could send the email, it didn't feel like my plot developed or took an interesting turn. It felt like my plot broke. Wait, hold up. That was my inciting incident. See, it's plot that screwed me over. The events went wrong. They they happened in the wrong order. I'm carrying this plot that should have been with me in my pocket with so much regret and remorse. And I'm wondering now. What do you do when your plot twists? Welcome back to Untitled Dad Project, Chapter 4, Plot. Here I am in this plot, the dead dad one, and I'm discovering this giant problem with being alive is that we get one plot, right? 
We just live one life in linear order, chronologically through time. That's insane when you think about it very hard. Like, who do I talk to about this? That's insane. You get one story in order. You want string theory. I want string theory. Yeah. What is what is string theory? Well, it's a lot bigger than what I know about string theory. But what I understand string theory to be is like, if you are here on one line mm-hmm. and everything you do makes that line split into other strings. So there could be different consequences for everything you do. Like multiple parallel universes. Yes. Like multiverses. Yes, and they split ah. into different strings every time any decision is made. Okay. And so you want string theory where you can live one life on this journey mm-hmm. knowing that you're also living all these other lives yeah, and on I these wanna, other journeys. Yeah, and I want to live the other lives too. Yeah. I do. I want string theory. I want alternate strings, but I don't just want like all of the potential alternate strings that could be happening at once, even though that sounds super fun. I specifically want all of the strings that stem off from the inciting incident where I did send my dad that email. And it's left me wondering, as the writer of this story, like, like what do you do as a writer when your inciting incident isn't what you kind of thought it would be in the story that you're working on? But more importantly, I'm wondering as a character in the story, what do I do now that my plot has changed? So I Googled things. You Googled things. I Googled things like expert in plot, Aristotelian plot structure, uh, professor of plot, and that led us to Peter. I'm Peter Brooks. We're talking together, I think, because I wrote a book called Reading for the Plot many years ago, and I've continued to be interested in narrative and how narrative plots structure our lives. And uh, An event, you, Carson, Googling that precise combination of words led to you finding Peter, which led to an event, me hopping on a plane to New York, then a train over to Princeton, then a walk across a campus into a small office filled with books. And... uh, I think that's why you came to me, and I'm delighted to have had this conversation. We jump in, and I do that thing where I catch him up on all the facts. I was drafting an email to the father I never knew but always planned on reconciling with, and he died unexpectedly six months later. None of his friends knew I existed, and I'm getting pretty good at it. And then I wrap it up. What do you do when the plot suddenly changes? And how do I create a meaningful plot that drives towards some kind of resolution? I mean, if I can just look at it sort of clinically from outside— what happened, I think, obviously creates more interesting plot possibilities hmm. for you. <laughs> I mean, had you met your father, had you found that you could talk to one another, that you could uh, reconcile uh, this great gap of the past, um, it would have been uh, a very nice plot for you, no doubt, but a fairly conventional plot. Hmm. You're faced with constructing something very new um, and something that in- involves how should I put it, mourning without having the body there, um, Yeah, absolutely. Mourning a, a ghost, and the ghost won't even talk yeah. to me. This reminds me a lot of what happened in the Taylor Ann interview, where you realized, oh, well, if I have to be in a soap opera, at least it's a good one. If you have to have this plot, at least it's an interesting one. Yeah, I can, I, I can concede that maybe my wrong plot is more interesting— So I think this is where I split into two, right? I split into a character who is, like, sure as hell that she's in a broken, wrong-ass story and her plot is wrong and will not concede that point. And I'm also the writer who can say, oh, this actually, this got more interesting. So, like, now how do I make this pay off for 
my Jan character, who is stubborn and sure as hell that she's in the wrong story. Some more good news. To Peter, my preoccupation with plot isn't odd at all. Plot is essential. I mean, it's what structures your experience of time, both in fictions and I think in your own life. You're always more or less semi-consciously telling yourself the story of your life and where it went wrong, where it got blocked, where you regret you didn't do something differently. Plot gives structure and form to time because time on its own is our prison. We are subject to time in a way we're not subject to space. We can move around in space um, anywhere now, but in, in time you're limited. I mean, you're moving forward in time whatever that means, and then it comes to an end. So understanding the shape of time or the shape that you make in your own life and time seems to me very difficult and very important to us. Mm-hmm. Carson, this helps me make so much sense out of the feeling I had when I got that email that said, you know, Rick Tears deceased. I felt acutely, oh, this is final. I can't go back, you know, a week or a day or even just like, 15 minutes, just uh, 60 seconds to go draft an email quick and send it and he could read it. Like, no, nope. From here on out, your dad will always be dead and time will move forward and you don't get to stop it. So final. Such a prison. Well, I mean, it's almost just reading the notes you sent. It's almost as if you uh, have a Victorian multi-plot novel going here. <laughs> <Explain> <laughs> right? to me. You have this one novel that you were anticipating of meeting your father, talking to him, perhaps reconciling with him in a way that would uh, sort of cast your life in a, in, a, in a different light, right? That it would be a story of loss and refinding and perhaps great love. Whereas now that's impossible, you've got another plot going. But it seems to me that your story ought to include both possibilities. How so? Well, one possibility, you know, there are often plots in multi-plot novels that, um, that suggest different outcomes to the same story. So he's offering me string theory. Yeah. Like, can't your story involve the multiple plots living next to each other at once. But that doesn't feel like that doesn't feel like a meaningful narrative resolution, does it? That feels like multiple different could have been each with their own resolution, like not one capital, you know, capital letter O, capital letter R, one resolution. Yeah, just because you could have all of them doesn't give you resolution. Mm. Peter then zooms back in on my dad character. You have to find a uh, a way to, what, create this father, I suppose, um, yeah. uh, out of your own capacities for imagination and empathy. Yeah, I'm recreating him based on birthday cards he sent mm-hmm. uh, and the stories that I'm learning from his friends about what kind of person he was, what he liked. And uh, what you're discovering about your father through his friends, does that does that jibe with your imaginary father or not? I mean, you must have spent a lot of time dreaming about that, imagining him, right? And now you discover a figure coming out of all these stories about him. Did it, does that sort of correspond to your it, childhood imaginings of a father? It, it, 
That's a really good question. He, um, I, I sort of very carefully didn't think about him. Is that true that you didn't imagine him? Or are you maybe trying to avoid engaging with painful memories again? <laughs> no, yeah, fair question. I No, it's absolutely true. I, I tried very carefully to not imagine my dad as a, as a child. Like, I didn't. I didn't dream about him. I didn't imagine him. I I think I l- pretty quickly figured out that if you don't wonder about him, then he's kind of not real and he can't hurt you. So yeah, Jan in this interview is being honest about that. The right way. One woman said, you know, it's such a shock to me because I always said, it's such a shame Rick will never be a father. He'd be so wonderful at it. It just seems like to this man, I existed in a wormhole, a loophole. I wasn't really real, maybe. I seem to have existed in a parallel universe to whatever was real for him. Gosh, that's fascinating. I mean, you <laughs> might almost conceive of writing uh, part of the narratives from his point of view. Oh, okay. I, why, why did he feel that you were living in a parallel universe? Why couldn't he break through whatever barrier it was and come in and see you? I mean, I think this happens to men that they feel excluded from a certain situation, maybe excluded themselves. I, you know, I know nothing about that. But um, it would be interesting speculatively to try and project your voice like a ventriloquist into, mm-hmm. into him uh, at some point in your narrative. Yeah, that would be, that would be, that would be. Uh, very difficult to do. I don't know. It it's, may be impossible. It's, but. what's hard about it is, is, I'm on a quest for narrative closure, and then I cannot divorce myself from this quest for literal closure. Normally when I'm creating, it's all speculative. So yeah, if you are often creating this speculative world, why do you think you feel so uncomfortable doing that for your dad? Because this isn't the first time this has come up. You said the same thing about you didn't want to write the lines for your dad for the soap opera scene we did. I don't know what that hang-up specifically is. Um, I'm concerned that I will make a dad, I will craft a dad, I will ventriloquist my way into the words of a dad that is more palatable for me, and then I will give myself a crutch. I want to know what he really would have said. But does it feel like crutches to explore multiple reasons, multiple things that he might have said, all of the things, the one that's more palatable for you and the one that might be horrible and that you never want to imagine? I guess not. I just call my bluff, you know? I want to know him. Not my version of him. No one's right about him, probably. They're probably each tapping into one facet of who he was, and I want to know what my facet of him would have been. Of course I won't know the whole person. No one knows the whole anybody. (laughs) We contain multitudes, right? I just want my shot at that. What would he have been to me? I don't know. I don't know. Though, of course, your story is the most important in all this, but you might want to imagine 
What was the source of that alienation? Was it fear? I mean, men are men are afraid of reproduction. I'm convinced. <laughs> it's scary having just children. Thematically, just as a or, or just a, as a. Well, it, I think the f- first child I had, it made made me feel very much in touch with death. You know. Oh. Because you realize at that point you're you're just replaceable. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I I, I loved. The child, but of still, course. I felt that you know, your T.S. Eliot puts it was it birth, copulation, and death, and that's all it's about. <laughs> and know? so you've done the first two. You're right. like, oh no, there's only right. one left. Oh. Huh. So, um, I mean, I can see a man being scared of having reproduced even mm-hmm. before the baby was born. Uh, but what you're describing that fear, and I can relate to somebody who's afraid. Mm-hmm. Sure. I can relate to that. Well, I mean, isn't that the whole point of fiction, is being able to get in someone else's head and look through their eyes, right? Mm-hmm. Without without necessarily being judgmental. You may want to be judgmental by the end, but the, the initial act of um, empathy or even Keats calls it being a chameleon, a chameleon poet, he calls it, mm-hmm. you know, being able to espouse other points of view. I really relate to that. Iago makes a lot of sense. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah. I, I, I relate to that. And, and as a teacher of literature, that's what you're doing all the time, mm-hmm. right? It's getting students past their sort of primitive moralism. <laughs> I mean, they tend to be so judgmental at that yeah. age. Yeah. Right? And you've got to get them beyond that. So I think, I mean, I think part of this story would be, I mean, you might write it starting judgmental and then... Uh, moving out into different possible stories that would lead you to something much more complicated, much more morally complicated, for one thing. I mean, yeah, it seems in this sort of stock character um, distribution that your father's a bastard, right? Um, But bastards can have their reasons, too. Yeah, certainly. Let's go ahead and take a break here. to you, Janielle, and your conversation with Peter Brooks. Obviously, you you are looking for some sort of closure to this story. Where do you think that's going to lie? I don't know. I'm right in the middle of it right yeah. now. Do you think you can ever forgive him? Do you think you should forgive him? Uh, do you think that that's part of the story, or, or would that just be too um, artificial or to self-sacrificing or whatever. I So for Jan character, what I'm interested in having her experience and myself experience is it, starting from a place, just starting as a child from a place of being like, I'm fine. I don't need a dad. I'm fine. I'm fine. So I'm you fine. definitely don't answer that question. <laughs> That's a straight up pivot. Yep. Just uh, a pivot. <laughs> uh, do you think, is it because you don't know the answer or because it makes you uncomfortable? Um. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I, I, I don't know if this story involves me forgiving him. What a good question. 
And like, is that forgiveness tied to the resolution? I don't know. Like, forgiveness is so nice. It seems so noble and worthy to be inside a story, but I don't know if that's what this is. It feels like the story, a lot of it is realizing that I was owed something. Do you think that forgiveness and resolution live in the alternate timeline? The one where you sent the email? Yeah, I think that's... I think that's the major problem with the email that I was trying to send is that what I was trying to send was something that was like, I forgive you and I have no resentment towards you. I don't think I was ready to say that. Like, I wasn't ready to say I forgive you. And that's why I was so hung up because I was trying to find the right words to say that. And I think the reason I was hung up is because maybe all I wanted to say in that email was like, hi. I don't think I was ready to say I forgive you, which is why I couldn't send it. Do you feel ready to forgive him now? Like today? Yeah. No. No, I don't think so. If you still don't feel ready to forgive him, which I think is totally valid... Why do you think that not sending the email is the big regret? I think sending anything would have been better than sending nothing and waiting and trying to send something that is perfect and all-encompassing. I could have sent, Hi, I got your email address. I'm wondering what you're doing in the world. I'm not ready to get lunch. I just want you to know that I'm here and that I'm real and that I'm not angry at you or like I haven't dismissed you as like, fuck that guy. Maybe. Honestly, even just a high (laughs) would have been something. He at least knew that I cared. It feels like drafting an email that said, I forgive you when that's not true would have also been a like violent betrayal. Yeah. This is, this is an interesting realization for me because I hear the regret of doing nothing, but it's also the first time I've ever thought about the fact that if you had sent the email, there would also be some regret attached. Yeah. It may have been lesser, of course, but it's the first time that I've ever thought, oh, you'd still have to reckon with the story of your dad character on the alternate timeline. Yeah, it's true. There'd be some kind of regret on each timeline, right? On one timeline where where I sent something that I was proud of, he has the power to have responded really poorly, like a real asshole. And I would maybe feel regret there. I shouldn't have said anything. There's all kinds of regrets. But I find myself on this one with one very clear and present regret, which was not having said anything at all. I just, I think, through his death, you realize that it really mattered that he wasn't in your life that whole time. And I think, had you sent the email, whatever you would have said at some point, 
him not responding, him responding well, him responding poorly, I think we still would have come to him not being here mattered and mattered the whole time. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. It would have found me, you're right. In any of those stories, that would have found me the same. That's a thing I haven't considered. Yeah, I guess I hadn't either. So let's pick up with Peter talking about where resolution might come from. Last words are all over the place in the classic novel, right? Uh, Death as a significant moment of transmission from one generation to another. Mm. And I don't think it really happens that way in in reality. Most people die without being conscious and in the hospital and so on. But I think there's some feeling of wanting a very significant utterance, right, on the on the brink of, of eternity. And there's no way to get that now. So you have to create this uh, possible reconciliation yourself and let him off the hook or not. I mean, it seems to be very possible that you'll decide that he's not to be left off the hook. So you, you, one thing you mentioned a little bit ago was the idea of, of- how many stories where death functions as transmission of, of power right. energy. Of, of wisdom, too. Of yeah. wisdom, and, and that kind of could happen, like, last couple pages, like this meaningful <laughs> yes. thing. So in my story, death happens right off at the top. Right. I guess my question is, well, so what do I do with death now that it's at the top of the story? What does death mean? Like, what is it? what is its thematic significance at the top of the story? I mean, uh one sort of classic novelistic trope would be person dies in the beginning and leaves a will or doesn't oh, leave a yeah, will. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and right, everyone's right. searching around for the latest for version sure. of the will, um, which raises the whole question of, of what do you inherit um, either materially or spiritually from your, from your progenitors? And that might be one way to look at it. What What is left uh, yeah. of this man in your life, right? What is his legacy in my life? What yeah, does he what, mean? What's, what's his testament to you, mm-hmm. so to speak? I can't remember. Did your dad leave a will? I have no idea. And that feels like an important question I probably should have answered at some point. I know that his friends were cleaning out his entire apartment, which had lots of stuff, and They sold his truck and gave me the money from the truck, and I got all the valuable things from his apartment, anything of value or sentiment, so I inherited my dad in a box. We should probably go through that box. Yeah, we should. I I don't actually want to go through his box as activation for um, this episode, this chapter, because I don't think that's an activational plot, but I think we do need to ask that as a better question than... What do we learn about a man from the objects he leaves behind? Which is, what do we learn about the man from the child he leaves behind? What's his inheritance? What's his legacy in her? Also outside the purview of plot. I got so much from Peter that has nothing to do with plot. Thank you, Peter. Case in point, Peter and I next veer off from plot again and start talking about what to do with dad characters or any character who is morally complicated or even a villain. Good villains are complicated villains, right? And, uh... 
whose motives are, we can understand. I mean, that's one thing that always interests me about uh, Heart of Darkness is the feeling that Marlowe, who's narrating this story, the reason he is so fascinated by this this awful man is that he, he feels a real, that he could have done that too, a sympathy with the devil. I have a horrible question. You can refuse to acknowledge, refuse to acknowledge that I even asked it. But that one sentence you just said uh, sparked a uh, curiosity. What, what what would it take for you as as a, as a father to remove yourself from your children's life? Um, it's a question that really cuts close to the bone because I had a second marriage when I was already quite old, and then that woman decided to divorce me uh, about mm. five years later, and I was completely unprepared for it. She had taken up with someone else, and uh, she was a lot younger than I. It probably was a bad idea to get married in the first place. But I had these two young daughters, and um, I was at that time teaching at Yale, mm. and she was in D.C., and uh, I just said to myself, I can't, you know, I, I also had adult kids. How can I be a decent father to these two young girls? Uh, they were, what were they, two and four. Oh, wow. um, I should just let her raise them mm. and, you know, I'd be a distant, benign presence, see them occasionally. And I thought that for a few hours and then said, no, I can't do that. And actually, that's why I left Yale and came to Princeton, to be that mm. much closer to them. So I, I see them every weekend. Um, so anyway... That that was not a real option for me, but it passed through my mind. Yeah, of course. And I can see that, I mean, f fathers are in a weird position, right? <laughs> uh, because they're in some sense, once they've done their thing, they're indispensable. Yeah, they're non-essential and somehow. It's like, like salmon who <laughs> climb up the falls yeah. and spawn and die, yeah. right? I guess I understand that, really. Well, I understand it as a temptation. Mm. Um, but one uh, to refuse or reject. Sure. I appreciate that he gamely answered that question. Like, this is not where I thought our conversation was going to go. Yeah, he's being really vulnerable. He is, but, you know, he also only considered doing it. Mm. Had he done it, I don't know. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have judged him, right? I would have understood him if he had, like, not been in his kids' lives. You think so? Well, they, he had his wife had taken up with some other guy, and they were so young that they would probably really, really attach to that guy as their dad. And I could see sort of being like, they might be better off without me. Hmm. I wonder if my dad ever thought that, that I was better off without him. I'm not sure if he would have been right or wrong about that. Are there any questions I haven't asked you that are interesting to you or that you you want to discuss? I think we've covered the ground uh, pretty well. I mean, the more we've talked, the more I've understood what really is interesting about the story you have to tell. And um, I, I don't think you should insist too much on closure. I think it's going to be a story... Um, it's going to have several different endings, right? Several different possible endings, all of them a little bit in suspense, one with another. Oh. Don't like that. Why not? <laughs> the point of this is closure. Hmm. 
like to to start trying to figure out my own story and only to figure out that the story is even bigger and that I'll never, ever, ever find any closure ever is like kind of obviously one version of this podcast. And I don't like it. Nope, I want the closure part. I know I might not find it. I see you looking at me. I know I might not find it. I can hear my listener listening to me. I understand, but I'm not, like, giving up. I then ask Peter if there's a way that entertaining multiple plots and multiple jans and multiple dads can in itself be a kind of resolution. A famous instance, uh, when Dickens finished Great Expectations, he showed it to his fellow novelist, Bulwer-Lytton, and, and Bulwer-Lytton said, you can't have it end that way. No one's going to accept it. So Dickens went back and rewrote the ending, uh, giving it a much more up, upbeat uh, feeling. And now most editions print both endings. So you can have two endings next to each other. Yeah, choose your own adventure. You have these literary examples of the of the multiple narrative yeah, strands. Right. And mine, I'm thinking specifically of like my Goosebumps mystery books I read as like a younger kid. Okay. In which you could choose your own adventure right, as you Right, went. exactly, yeah. And, the, and all the fun was. John Fowles does that too, the mm-hmm. French lieutenant's woman, yeah. Oh, great. He gives you two alternative endings to choose. Can't get away with that all the time. No, sure. Yeah. Sure. In life, I feel like you can't quite. No, in life, you can't <laughs> but quite. But in literature, you yeah. can, and that's the yeah. point of this. Um, thank you so much. I, we're over time. I really appreciate your. Um, I really appreciate you giving me so much of your oh, time. My pleasure. Let's take an ad break here, and when we get back, Jan and I are going to activate her plot. Get your goosebumps. Choose your own adventure books. Ready. What Peter keeps offering me is the option of multiple endings, like that one Dickens novel he mentioned, or multiple plot strings that coexist at once, like in a Victorian multi-plot structure. So I thought what I could do is activate plot by translating it into my version of those, which is the Goosebumps Choose Your Own Adventure. (laughs) And I can let all the different plots coexist in mutual tension and explore them all and finally explore my strings that I've been missing from our butchered string theory. Yes. Before we do that, there's a piece of audio that I want to play for you. This is from immediately after your Peter interview. You'd flown out to New York and taken a train down to interview him. Um, So it's like two and a half years ago uh, we did this. And I think this piece of audio is really important to our discussion. This is what we ended up talking about. This whole week, I've been thinking about how powerful our pull towards revisionist history is. Like how desperate we want to make meaning out of things, to make sense out of things, and how 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 much our brain is wired for like a year down the road, two years down the road to look back and say, ah, it was meant to be that way. You know, I can't imagine the world where I didn't, this didn't happen to me because look at all the growth and beauty that's come out of it. I think that's part of the hardwiring of being a person 
is sort of like a dumb, sweet impulse towards redemption. And I think it's beautiful and it's really powerful. The, you know, like my dad's death is going to lead to so much other beauty in my life. And it must have been meant to be because it is what happened. But I want to freeze time for a moment and sit right here and say, like, no, this wasn't supposed to happen. Like, I think I was supposed to have a dad. I think I was supposed to send him that email and reach out to him and 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 give some sort of olive branch so that he died not so he died knowing that I didn't resent him and that you know he was a little less alone in the universe. I think I was supposed to do that and I didn't and there's a consequence to that which is that now I'll regret it. I think these are bad things that happened and it's okay that they're bad and they don't have to have a beauty or a meaning later. Can they just not be bad? Can we not just like sit there. Like, I think it's beautiful that we can create, we can spin beauty out of tragedy. I just think the pit itself, like the tragedy, the mourning, the sadness, like that dark pit is, um, it's worthy. It's bad. And I think we should call it as what it is. It's bad. It's not just like the pit on the way to the, the new peak. It is itself just that pit. And I want to honor that, and I can already feel in myself, like, everything pointing towards a new kind of hope, a new kind of optimism, that, that, that tragedy is never without meaning. And that's fine. And I'm, I'm sure I'll get there and none of this will make sense to me anymore. I won't relate to it. I'll be in the new space where something beautiful has come out of my dad's death, right? Like, I'm sure I'll be just as authentically there. But for a moment, I want to authentically be here now and say this is bad. I would choose the story where this didn't happen. <laughs> I don't think I'm less noble. And I think that... Uh, I think that I'll have, my mind will be changed in, you know, a year, two years, three years. I, I just, I know I'll change my mind. I just want to let senseless tragedies be senseless. Why do they have to have sense? And, and be, oh, you know what I'm doing? I'm grieving. <laughs> That's what it is, right? It's, uh, I want to sit here for a minute and just be sad about it and say this wasn't supposed to happen and it's a real fucking bummer. Yeah, okay. So what I want to do is grieve. What I hear you saying in this past debrief is that you actually don't want to change plots. I hear you saying you want to sit and acknowledge this grief and this really, really awful pain that you were in and not move on and not get over it, but to just like be, to sit on that string and be where you are. So in therapy, there's a lot of language around like when something happens to you, when there's trauma. And the language that you hear from a lot of other people is like, oh, you are going to get over it. Uh, you're going to get past it. You're going to move on. And for victims, that's actually really not helpful language. What I really prefer, um, having worked on some trauma stuff myself, the language I really like is integrating. Hmm. It's this idea of something happened to me, something horrible, and I had no control over it, and I don't have to get over it. 
I don't have to move on from it. Instead, it is a thing that happened to me that is now integrated into my story. And that grief is integrated, the grief for what could have been, and the desire to move on or not move on is integrated. But it's, it's, it's all there still. And so I hear you in this interview saying, asking to do that, asking to integrate this, asking not to move on. I want to sit in the pit. Yeah. Yeah, I want to be here. I want to be exactly Mm. where I am and not feel pressure to move on or get over it. Hmm. So what you're saying is um, past Jan in the pit who I don't feel like anymore. I was feeling maybe like a little guilty because like she's talking to me and she's saying like future you is not going to feel as bad. And I was like, oh my God, she's right. Like I don't feel that bad anymore. Hmm. I rem- That was true. And now something else is true, which is I'm starting to feel that tug to like spin it into gold, like make it an interesting, like fun podcast. But, but I felt it then. Like yeah. It was real. Yes. And I really thought maybe this is just sad. Maybe this will just always be sad. And maybe, maybe this project will just be the honest chronicles of the meaninglessness of grief and how senseless it is. Now you never get over it. So I guess what I hear you saying, though, is that, like, the mourning and the feeling it fully, like, like grieving <laughs> and sitting and letting yourself feel the thing like I did, and integrating that into your story, like, is not spinning it into a story that it isn't, spinning it into a false, like, sense of a happy ending. And it's not... Like invalidating, well, you don't feel that way anymore, so it wasn't real. And it's not the brain chemicals tricking me, like the way when a mom has gives birth like to a baby and her brain chemicals jump in or serotonin or whatever and like brainwash her into forgetting exactly how painful it was. Like I'm not brainwashing myself. It's that like I'm integrating it. Yeah. So like past jam was there. And from here we'll move forwards. And it'll evolve and it'll change and it'll feel different. And it was real then. And it feels a little different now. And we're going to keep going. And it'll always be there. Okay. Okay, so then the point is, so the activation is that I honor past Jan in the pit, who's really right about some stuff. God, I was so sad. I was not okay there for a while. Mm-mm. Yeah, we didn't record for quite a while after that yeah Mm. I want to like curl up all those other strings and tie them in a bow and have them sit in my pocket and I will remember them with pain and sadness but I'm on this string so the opposite of what I said at the beginning of this episode how funny So I wonder then if the activation is we name the other strings and say goodbye. Okay. Okay. All right. So recalibrating a choose-your-own-adventure is... um, Okay. 
So there's the one that we realized never even had a chance where Jan carries on unperturbed, where Dad and Jan never actually cross paths, and he, she never finds out he died, and she never sends the email, and everything's fine, and the stasis is never broken. It, you know, that never would have happened, but to that version of me who just somehow ends up being fine in her stasis, goodbye. Okay, then there's the one where um, Jan intervenes and sends the email and and creates some kind of adult relationship with dad character, and he doesn't die because she, you know, gets him help or something happens, and and they are able to figure out how to get him what he needs so he doesn't die alone in his apartment, and she's a part of his life as a grown-up. Um, and they have some sort of, like, adult relationship where he's able to explain some things to her and she understands and um and they have some sort of closure that way uh, that's not what happened goodbye and then there's the much more realistic one where Jan does intervene and sends the email and he still dies you know when he died but before he dies he sends an email back, and it's a bad email, and she's like, well, good riddance. I was better off without him. Or it's a great email, and she's able to connect with him somehow, and maybe then she's ready to actually forgive him because he says, I'm sorry. And they correspond for a bit, and then he dies. Which I think is the one I would have picked, you know? Just something. Jan character just did something. But she didn't. I didn't. I could have, but I didn't. So to that path, I say goodbye. And then there's this one. This path I'm on, where Jan character doesn't intervene, doesn't send an email, and he dies. And a loss opens up inside her that tries to swallow her. To you, I say hello. This is our plot. This is our path. This is our string. Let's keep going.
Next time on Untitled Dad Project, Janielle and I explore prophecies that live at the beginning of our stories and confront the theme that may have been chasing her her whole life. Daddy issues. In Chapter 5, Foreshadowing. Before I go there, can I address the daddy issues? I didn't know what turning to men for attention was, but I decided I better not do it. In our society, it's not nice for girls to be angry and rageful. Welcome to what it feels like to love people wholeheartedly and feel pain. See you then. Untitled Dad Project is co-hosted by me, Janielle Kastner, and the wonderful Carson McCain. Please head to Apple Podcasts and leave us some stars and write us a review. We read them, and they make us really happy. Also, if getting string theory wrong really bothered you in this episode, tell us about string theory in those comments after you leave five stars. I'm so sorry. And we'd love to hear how plot is relevant in your life. What have been your plot twists? Were they wonderful, awful, awful at first, and then wonderful? Tell us at Untitled Dad Project on Instagram or email us untitleddadproject at spokemedia.io. We think that your story matters and we'd love to hear it. Untitled Dad Project is a Spoke Media production. We're produced by Carson McCain with associate producer Kelly Kolf and our sweet baby intern, Lauren Floyd. Special thanks to Peter Brooks. Thank you for understanding my obsession with plot. And I'll read The French Lieutenant's Wife if you'll read Goosebumps. Deal? This episode was mixed by Evan Arnett, and our head of post-production is Will Short. The music that you heard at the end of today's episode was composed in response to this chapter by Rat Rios. She also wrote our theme song. Check her out, Rat Rios, on Instagram and SoundCloud. Our gorgeous mountain artwork is by at Kevin Craft Co. Hire him for your logos or anything visual. Our executive producers are Aaliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds. Thank you for listening. It means the world. Like, you know, you listen to podcasts and like, they're like, what was that movie with Jim Carrey? And you're screaming in your car like, the mask, you know, and they can't hear you. I feel like all the things I had to realize today about plot are like so obvious to anyone who's listening in their car. But it's a lot harder when it's your dead dad and your grief that you haven't looked at in your four years of audio that you're parsing through to figure out where you've been and where you are and where you're going, maybe. And it's a lot harder when it's your dead dad. That's our merch. Yeah. That's the one. <laughs> Those are our t-shirts. That's the one. That's our Stay Sexy Don't Get <laughs> It's a lot harder when it's your dead dad. <laughs> Goodbye. Oh. <laughs> Goodbye. Dumb. Dumb, dumb, dumb.